podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Friday. It is the 13th of October. Hope none of you have any um, superstitions about Friday the 13th or any of that kind of nonsense. It's always a little bit eerie, though, when Friday the 13th falls in October, when you should be spending any spare time that you're not watching football or, you know, working or whatever else you're doing with your families, uh, watching spooky movies and tv shows that's what you should do in the month of october and when friday the 13th falls around i mean you have to watch the friday the 13th movies of course but 
also, you know, it does just give you a little bit of the chills. Anyway, not to worry about that. Uh, it's pissing rain again here um, after a couple of decent, uh, well, about a day, day and a half of decent weather. It was actually all right, all right this morning, but uh, now it's pissing rain again. So that's lovely. Right. Uh, we are here today to do Nostalgia Day. Didn't get to do it on Wednesday, but we're going to do it today. And today's focus, I think... I think this came from Kyle Campbell. I think. I could be wrong. I'm almost certain he sent it to Guy and Guy sent it to me. Um, we're going to look at the 1998 World Cup and the 2000 European Championships. So, obviously, both of these competitions were won by France. But what I thought we'd do is we'd start with 98, we'd work through the squads, pick out some of the, you know, the standout squads, the standout players, and go from there. So let's start in 1998. Group A, and the headline team in that group is obviously Brazil. And in this Brazil squad, you've got incredible forward options, decent midfield options, and a fairly shaky defense. So, Claudio Tafarel is the starting goalkeeper. Carlos Germano is the backup. And Dida is the third choice. Dida, obviously, this is pre-AC uh, Milan Dida. None of these goalkeepers are of the elite level. Tafarel, at this point in his career, had regressed or declined. Uh, Germano was decent, but never great. And I think Dida is the same. In defence, you do have Cafu and Roberto Carlos. But in the middle, you've got some issues. Aldair is still there. He was great in his pomp. And he would have a couple of really good club seasons after this. But at 32, he had started to decline a little bit. He'd had some injuries. He wasn't quite the same defender he'd been at his very best. Junior Baiano, I was never hugely fond of. Zacarlos, I don't really understand why he was ever in the squad, because he was far, far, far from the level required. He was 29 at this point, called into the squad. And there was, I remember at the time, some some suggestion that he was called into the squad by accident, that he wasn't the player that they meant to call up, but he got the call up anyway. I don't know if that's true. It probably isn't, but you know how these things go. Uh, Goncalves, not of the level. Andre Cruz, not of the level. Never quite understand understood uh, how he ended up having as decent of a career as he did. Played for Napoli and for a number of years, then went to Milan. Uh, spent a few years with Sporting as well. Won 31 Brazilian caps. I just never thought he was all that good. But the highlights of this Brazil squad, I mean, you've still got Dunga in midfield, 34. He is past his best. He's playing in Japan, but he's still able to read the game at an exceptionally high level. You've got the attack. Oh, the other midfielder to note in this this team is Emerson. One of the most underrated midfielders of all time. You've also got Ziroberto. I loved watching him play. It kind of reminded me of Gio Van Bronckhorst. Could play left back, could play left wing, could play left side of the midfield. Just very, very talented. Uh, you've got Leonardo trying to make up for his actions at the 94 World Cup, where his decision to elbow an American in the head was almost catastrophic for Brazil. 
You've got Danielson. This was before he would become the world's most expensive player. You've got Bebeto. You've got Edmundo. Bebeto obviously had been part of that squad in 94, almost as the foil to Romario. Modern player that reminds me of him is actually Diogo Jota. Uh, similar type of off-ball work, similar type of poacher's mentality, similarly limited in build-up play and technical skills. Uh, Edmundo was... Edmundo's one of my favourite strikers of all time. Incredibly talented, incredibly flawed, an absolute lunatic who clubs just couldn't put up with for any prolonged period of time. So I just want to go through his career very quickly. He spends four years in the Vasco da Gama Academy from 11 to 15, leaves to go to Botafogo, spends two years there, and they just get sick of him, and he goes back to Vasco. He spends a year more in the academy, and then he gets into the Vasco first team at 20 years of age, 1991. After a year... He leaves and goes to Palmieri's, spends a year there, scores for fun, and they decide we don't really want any more of this fella. They loan him to Parma. Doesn't work out. Palmieri's sell him to Flamengo. Six months into his tenure there, they're like, no, no, we, we don't want any more of this guy. Loan him to Corinthians. He finds his way back to Vasco in 1996, and he explodes. He has an unbelievable season. And this is the season that really brought him to light because he started to really get some traction with the national team and it earned him a move to Fiorentina. After a year, Fiorentina decided, we don't want this fella around. He goes back to Vasco. He scores for fun and they decide he's too much hassle and they send him on loan to Santos. He does really well, but they don't want to keep him. So he gets loaned again to Napoli. Doesn't do all that well there. Goes to Cruzeiro. After less than a year, he's on the move again to Tokyo Verde. Scores for fun, but they don't want to keep him. Urawara Red Diamonds take a chance on him. He goes there. They just don't want him. They realize very quickly this guy's too much trouble, and he goes back to Vasco. Then six months later, he's off to Fluminense. Then a year later, he's on the move again, joining Nova. Then six months later, he moves again to Figuerense. Then he goes back to Palmieri's after a good season with Figuerense. Has a decent season with Palmieri's, but they decide, you know what? No. And he ends up back at Vasco, where he has one final really good season, finishes out his career at the age of 37. The longest spell he spent at one club was 1982 to 1986 as an 11 to 15 year old in the Vasco Academy. And every move he made after that, the longest he lasted was two years. And even then that was two years in the Academy at Botafogo and two years with Vasco, one of which was in the Academy in his pro career from 91 to 2008 He just didn't stick anywhere. Nowhere was willing to put up with him. There's a couple of seasons that he didn't get to play for different reasons. Um, 
it it's just incredible how much he bounced around because his personality, his attitude, his enjoyment of the other things in life that weren't football. Um, it was just, he was nuts. He was absolutely nuts. He hired an entire circus to perform in his back garden for his son's first birthday because the one-year-old was definitely going to know what was going on. Uh, he was he was accused of encouraging a chimpanzee to drink beer and whiskey. Just insane. Absolutely insane. He caused the death of three people because he got drunk and crashed his car at the Rio Carnival. Just an absolute headbanger. By all accounts, an atrocious human during his career. But he had everything as a player. His dribbling skills, his, his control, his passing, his finishing. He's good in the air. Could play back to goal, could play off the, off the shoulder, could play as a second striker, could play wide. He could do anything. But he could do anything. Like, he didn't wait for centre-backs to kick him. He just went and booted them. Oftentimes right under the nose of referees and got himself sent off on a frequent basis. He was a psychopath. I'd love to know what he's doing now. He's one of those players I always think of and wonder, how does he readjust to normal life? Because a fellow like him can't become a manager. Can't become a manager. Far too volatile. He'd be likely to punch a player who didn't do exactly what he asked. He'd be likely to punch a referee who gave a decision against him. Like there were seasons he scored for fun, but he blotted his copybook so many times. Then the two big stars, Rivaldo, at this point, electric for Barcelona, and Ronaldo. At this point, going into this tournament, the greatest player on planet Earth. And the first player to make a real case that he might be better than Maradona. That's where we were with him at this point. That he might be better than Maradona. He might become the greatest player we've ever seen. He had everything as a nine. Big, strong, lightning quick, incredible dribbler. Like, ridiculously good dribbler. His finishing was outrageous. He could score all kinds of goals. He was tough. He'd already overcome a torn ACL by this point. There was just no way to stop him. He was just on a completely different level. He'd had that season with Barcelona. To this day... I, I still think Barcelona, the decision not to give him a new contract and to agree to let him leave to go to Inter. I know the Inter paid an enormous fee for him, but ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Cruzeiro, 34 league games, 34 goals. Like, silly. In 
all competitions, he scored 44 and 47 for Cruzario. He left them, remember, as an 18-year-old. And he'd already scored 44 and 47. He went to PSV, 35 and 36 in his first season, 19 and 21 in his second season, and then he hurt his knee. Then he joins Barcelona. One season. Bear that in mind. One season. 47 goals in 49 games. Then he goes to Inter. At the time, Serie A is defensively incredible. Every top team had elite defenders. And he scores 34 in 47, 25 in Serie A. Like, these are Haaland-level numbers in an era where the game wasn't so enormously skewed in the favour of of attacking players. Defenders actually had a fair chance at this point. He's going up against people like Cannavaro and Nesta and Costa Corta. And he's rinsing them all, rinsing them all. Alessandro Nesta at that point at Lazio was well on his way to establishing himself as an all-time great centre-back. He was flawless. He never looked rattled. The first game he played against Ronaldo, he looked like he was looking in the stands for his mum and dad so he could get a hug because he got rinsed. He was never the same after this World Cup. Now, part of that is what happened with his knee injury because he did start the next season playing very well. Again, not the same level as he had been to this point. And I know people will say, oh, well, when you look at his Real Madrid numbers, he scored 30 and 44, 31 and 48, 24 in 45. He did, but at that point, he had he had become much more of a poacher. He wasn't the same all-encompassing, do-everything-at-an-incredible-level number nine that he had been prior to this World Cup. Like, think of how good Thierry Henry was. Think of how good Alan Shearer was and think of how good Ruud van Nistelrooy was. Imagine moulding all of them into one player so you get Shearer's hold-up play and link play and strength and ability in the air, van Nistelrooy's finishing, Henri's explosiveness, his dribbling, his flair for the outrageous goal. Imagine putting all of them into one player and then making that player... 15 to 25% better. And you'd have an approximation of what this guy was. He was just unstoppable. There was nothing he couldn't do. Absolutely outrageous. Uh, also in that group, we have Morocco. Notable names. Uh, Nourdine Nebet. Long time, very good player for Deportivo La Coruña, among others. Um, Mustafa Hadji, excellent player, played for Coventry. I always enjoyed watching him play. Uh, also played for Aston Villa. It's funny, Nebet, Hadji and Rivaldo, all of them were at Deportivo La Coruña at different times. 
in the 90s. Deportivo back then. And I, I think Depor are a club I want to go over, like the the Super Depor era. era. Um, probably start with the win over Arsenal and go from there at some point. But Depor were such an important club in the 90s and 2000s and to see where they are now, it's such a shame. Um <clears throat> Right, who else have we got then? Um, Norway, you've got Henning Berg, you've got Stiginga Bjornaby, Ronnie Janssen. There's a lot of Premier League influence. For some reason in the 90s, a lot of Premier League clubs started snapping up Norwegian players. I think they adapted quite well and were mentally tough, so they fit in well to the Premier League. You've got Gunnar Halle, you've got Tori andre Flo, Ivan Leonardson, Thomas Meyer, solid backup goalkeeper for a long time, Eggy Olsenstad who was really good for Southampton and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, and then we've got Scotland seeing it out that group. Um, a very old Jim Layton. Got Jackie McNamara, who was a really exciting right back. Play midfield. You've got Colin Hendry, Colin Calderwood, longtime Premier League stalwart, Kevin Gallagher, Craig Burley, John Collins, one of the proverbial ones of a left foot. Gordon Jury, I always liked, even though he played for Rangers. Uh, Neil Sullivan was a solid goalkeeper in the Premier League. Scott Gemmell, he was never as good as his dad, but he was a decent player. Um, Derek White was a solid centre-back for a long time, played for a bunch of clubs. And Christian Daly, who I think was was actually quite good and probably should have become better. In Group B, we get Austria, uh, Andy Herzog is the standout name there for me. Very, very in- intelligent, skillful number 10. Played for Werder Bremen. Um, nobody else in that, that Austrian squad really stands out to me. Uh, moving on to Cameroon. Obviously, they'd been the darlings of the 1990 World Cup. They were great fun in 94. Um, at this point... You look to the squad, you've got a young Rigobert song. This is very, it's, it's quite a young squad in a lot of areas. You've got a young Rigobert song at 21. He would obviously go on to be a very important player for them. You've got a very young Samuel Etu at 17. Uh, Joseph Desiree Job at 20, again, very, very young. Solomon Olembi, only 17. Nobody, Loren who would obviously go on to play for Arsenal. Uh, he's only 21. So this was sort of an in-between Cameroon squad. They've got some older players in their mid-30s, and then you've got a lot of younger players at kind of 17 to 23 kind of age group. Um, Chile, also in this group, obvious standout players. Ivan Zamorano, who'd been at Real Madrid and had now gone to Inter, uh, made famous the one plus eight shirt number, which I still don't know how that was allowed. Uh, Clarence Acuna, he was a decent midfielder in his day. But the standout name for me, now we didn't really know it all that much at the time, though I remember reading about him in World Soccer magazine when he was at Universidad de Chile. He'd gone on to River Plate, would soon join Lazio after this tournament and, and make his his bones in Europe with them, uh, Marcelo Salas. 
um, who, who I, I loved watching play. Five eight five nine, about the same width, incredible strength, unbelievable technical ability, brilliant in the air despite not being tall, because could just bully any centre back because he was he was kind of squat in his build in his build, and he would just put his shoulder into like just above the hip of centre backs, like dip into them and shove them. And create space. And then he, he could score for fun with that left foot of his and his ability in the air. Him and Zamorano were a problem. They were basically, you know, this is because, you know, in The Hobbit, you know, the way the dwarves are like incredibly strong and they have that real squat build. The two boys were like that, except a bit more athletic. Um, but yeah, they were just, they were so much fun. He, is, Salas at Lazio was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I don't think he ever fully settled in Europe, though, because he only spent he spent three years with Lazio, then he joined Juve, and he was with them for five years, but he spent three of those on loan, two at River Plate and one back with Universidad, and he finished off at Universidad. I loved him. He's he's one of my favourite players of all time. Um, anyone else of note? Nobody that's jumping out to me. We'll go on to the Italians. You've got Francesco Taldo, an all-time great goalkeeper. You've got, in defence, Giuseppe Bergami, all-timer. Maldini, all-timer. Cannavaro, all-timer. Costa Curta, all-timer. Nesta, all-timer. Like, that's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Um, You've got Pisotto and Torricelli, who were solid. Midfield, you've got Albertini, what a player. I mean, what a player. The the first real deep-lying playmakers that I can remember now, and this is of of first-hand memories, where I actually watched them play at the time, were Pep and him. And I would have always had Albertini over Pep because he's better defensively. Um, You've got Alessandro Del Piero, Dino Baggio, hugely underrated player, who was an outstanding midfielder for a bunch of clubs in the 90s and 2000s, Torino, Juve, Parma, Lazio. Very, very good player. Big, powerful. I suppose a pre-injury, Javi Martinez, probably be the closest thing to Badu. Like early, first, first three years at Bilbao, Javi Martinez, that kind of player. Uh, Gianluca Pagliuca, one of my, well, actually my favourite goalkeeper of all time. Um, he was called up after Angelo Peruzzi got injured. Peruzzi was the number one for Italy at this point. Um, he got injured. Pagliuca got called up and he made, I think, probably the three best saves in the tournament. There's one against, I want to say France. There's one from a header. I'll remember them. I I, rem- I remember, I can picture the, the saves. I can't think of who they're against. I think it was France. Was it a group stage game? Was it against Chile? There's a header from about six yards out and it's bulleted at the ground, like less than two feet from his feet. And he manages to just contort his body and get down and pin it. It's one of the most outrageous saves I've ever seen. And I can picture the save as I close my eyes. 
I just can't picture who the opposition are, which is a weird thing. Um, you've got Roberto Di Matteo in the squad. You've got Roberto Baggio, who'd been recalled after in- incredible performances for Bologna. Uh, Pipo Inzaghi, Enrico Chiesa, loved him. Tremendous player. Christian Vieri and a very young Gigi Buffon who hadn't established himself yet. But, you know, I mentioned how incredible their defence was. You've got Taldo, Pagliuca, Peruzzi, Buffon, Luca Marcagiani would have been an option for them as well. Like it, Italy, they were loaded with goalkeepers and defenders at this point. The midfield was a little bit light on real, real elite talent. And they didn't have that. Like at this point, Vieri was, he was like a bull in the china shop a little bit. He wasn't consistent enough. Inzaghi wasn't consistent enough. You had the second striker types in Del Piero and Baggio. They didn't have that reliable source of goals. But they probably should have achieved uh, achieved more. Cesare Maldini, father of Paolo, was the, was the manager. Uh, the Danes, Peter Schmeichel, don't need to go over him. Talked about him a lot. Thomas Helweg. Really underrated right back. Like, just one of those players that you just stuck him in. He's 7 out of 10 every week and you never need to worry about him. He doesn't get rinsed by wingers. And he'll offer you a little bit going forward. Um, Michael Laudrup had made his return to the squad and was still just a genius. Just so much fun to watch. I, I He's still my favourite player of all time. His brother Brian, obviously, was a great player as well. Uh, Stig Toth. Uh, Stig Tofting was a, a fun midfielder because he'd just run around and boot people and could play a bit on the ball as well. Um, on to France then. Barthez is the starting goalkeeper. I don't think he came into the competition with the intention that he was going to start. I think Bernard Lamar was probably still the nominal first choice. I could be completely wrong about that though. But Barthez obviously started the tournament in goal and was, was just was great through the tournament. It was genuinely great. Uh, you've got Vincent Candela, really good fullback. Vizante Lazarazu, who doesn't get really brought up in the conversations of the best left-backs ever, but he should certainly be in that conversation. Now, he's he's not the best ever. That's It's obviously Maldini. So the conversation is who's the second best left-back ever. He's probably, he's top 10, I would say. I would say he's top 10 in his prime, he was probably top five, but then players have come along since. But he was really, really good. Patrick Vieira, what a player. I I, I could bring, if I could bring one player from that era into today's Premier League, I think it might be him. So I just think he'd run amok in this, this iteration of the Premier League. He was just so powerful, so dynamic really technically gifted and so often overlooked was how technically gifted he was. Laurent Blanc was towards the tail end of his career here, obviously would continue to play for a few years and end up at Manchester United, but he read the game at such an amazing level that it didn't matter that he, you know, had no pace or anything. He was just brilliant. Yuri Jorkaev was, he's just one of those players that you really have to have seen him to fully appreciate him. One of those uber-intelligent Thomas Muller types who played between the lines, did everybody's thinking for them, directed the game from that second striker, number 10 type of position. He was tremendous. 
Didier Deschamps, Zidane won, or not Zidane, Cantona once called him a water carrier. And that is what he did. He did it very well. And he was a great leader of that French team. Marcel Desailly, he'd been a centre-back at Marseille. He was a dominant, dominant defensive midfielder for AC Milan. He played centre-back for France in this competition. Next to Laurent Blanc was fantastic. Genuinely fantastic. Would move on to Chelsea then after this competition. Uh, you've got Stefan Givarch, who was the number nine because they didn't really have a number nine. And he wasn't a big-time goal scorer for France. Um, he had been at Camp. He had had a failed move to Auxerre. He'd rehabilitated himself at Rennes. He had done really well at Auxerre. He went to this World Cup. He played really well as a foil. And somehow Newcastle thought, this is the guy to bring him in. And he was a disaster. He was a disaster at Newcastle. He didn't do all that well at Rangers. He'd go back to Auxerre, and he did pretty well back there. But he was in the team as a foil. He worked really hard, occupied defences, and allowed the more talented players to really be the ones that impacted games. Um, Zinedine Zidane, at the time, the second best player in the world. After the tournament, undeniably the best player in the world. He ascended while Ronaldo started to have his dip, um, which is obviously a, a big shame. Robert Perez, this is pre-Arsenal Robert Perez as well. Um, just a really exciting player. A young Thierry Henry, again, pre-Arsenal Thierry Henry, pre-Juve Thierry Henry. This is a, this is a very young Henry who's at this point still trying to figure out how to control his arms and legs. He looked a little bit like a giraffe sprinting at full speed with only two set, with only two legs or like an ostrich or something. It was it was strange, but you could tell that there was something about the kid. Uh Bernard DMA was a decent player. Alan Bogassian, solid ball winner in midfield. Lillian Turam, the best defensive right back there's ever been, without question. I think Giuseppe Bergami could make a case because he played right back a lot, but he did prefer to play centre back. But Turam was just. Turam's athleticism meant that no winger could out sprint him. His intelligence meant that he was always in the right position. His technical ability meant that he could get forward and join the attack. He just had everything, absolutely everything. Um, then you've got Barthez, you've got Emmanuel Petit, who's really good for Arsenal at this point. Frank LeBeouf came to Chelsea as a sweeper, didn't like playing as a centre-back, would transition to centre-back, would end up playing in the final, and would become a, a very, very good defender for a long time. Um, Christian Carambu, I, I always liked him, loved him at Sampdoria, loved him at Real. Young David Trezeguet, who again is making his way at, Mar- at Monaco next to Henri. Christophe Dugarry, who been at Bordeaux with Zidane and just didn't quite make that next step up. And then Lionel Charbonnier, uh, who I don't actually remember at all. I don't know anyone from the Saudi Arabian team. Uh, South Africa, Phil Masinga, decent. Uh, Mark Fish, solid defender. Benny McCarthy, probably the standout name here other than Lucas Radaby who was, was a great defender for Leeds. 
Bulgaria. This Bulgaria team had aged out. 94 was their kind of peak. At this point, all the, the elite players, Ivanov, Stoichkov, Lechkov, they're all into their 30s. Lechkov, I don't think he's even in the squad. He's not. Uh, Lubislav Penev. Lubislav Penev. He's the big striker I was trying to think of a few weeks ago, isn't he? He's the big striker. I don't know if... I, I assume it was on this. When... When Barcelona bought Romario, Stoichkov came out and said that they bought the wrong striker. They should have bought Penev, who he was used to playing with with the national team, and that he would have paid the transfer fee out of his own pocket. Um, in truth, he just he was good, but not great. Krasimir uh, Balakov is a great player. There was a lot of talent in this squad, but they were all, the, all the best players are in their 30s. Jordanov was another really good player. Yankov had been really good for them for a long time. Very experienced squad. Um, Boroslav Mihailovic, no, Mihailov, Mihailov, the goalkeeper, he's still knocking around as well at 35. Uh, Nigeria, Noanku Kanu, Celestine Babiaro, longtime Chelsea left back. Taribo West, Finiti George. Sunday Olise, really good holding midfielder. Never quite took the next step up after leaving Ajax. Um, Victor Pide, he he looked like he was going to be something special, but never kind of developed. Paraguay, uh, Francisco Arce, the, the right back, he was a good player. Chilever is the, is the notable most notable name in this squad, Jose Luis, Luis Chilever. He was the real star of the squad, which is crazy considering he was a goalkeeper, but he was also, you know, one of the biggest goal threats. Uh, Spain, Albert Ferrer, really solid. Zubi Zared, obviously, great goalkeeper. Um, Fernando Hierro, the best Spanish defender of all time. A young Fernando Morientes, a young Raul. Julian Guerrero, who I loved at Athletic Bilbao. It's a shame he never, he, he was obviously as a, as a Basque player, his dream had been to play for Bilbao. And he joined them when he was eight and he stayed his entire career. For years, he was being linked to the top, top clubs. And right in the middle of his prime, he signed a 10-year contract and ended up, well, he was 24, 25 when he signed it. So, don't know if he was in his prime, but he was approaching his prime. Signed like a 10-year contract and made it clear he was never going to leave. But clubs were talking about mega money moves for him in the late 90s and early 2000s. Such a good player. Creative goal-scoring midfielder. Always overlooked. But Julian Guerrero is a name people should remember. Um... Alfonso Perez, we, we talked about him recently for all the wrong reasons. Juan Antonio Pizzi, he's another one of these players that had like a great season and then earned a big move and then it, it didn't work out. In his case, he had actually he had a great season with, te- with Tenerife, earned a big move to Valencia. It didn't work out. He went back to Tenerife, had another really good season, earned a move to Barcelona, and it just didn't work at all for him. 
Um, he ended up playing in Argentina for a while after this World Cup. And then, yeah, and he spent quite a bit of the later part of his career in Argentina. And most of his managerial career has been spent in South America between, I think it's actually, yeah, he spent some time in Chile, but mostly in Argentina. Uh, He managed a Chilean national team. He's managed in the Middle East. He's currently the manager of Behran. Juan Antonio Pizzi, fair play. He's a decent player. Was a decent player. Uh, Sergi, good left back. Santiago Canazares was a really good goalkeeper for Real as a backup, obviously. And then for um, for Valencia, once broke his foot dropping a bottle of aftershave on it, though, which is you know questionable for a goalkeeper. Uh, Ivan Campo, uh, mad hair, mad hair. That's all I can really think of. Played for Bolton. It was pretty decent. Guillermo Amor was good. Luis Enrique was very good. Miguel Angel Nadal was one of those really good centre-backs who was actually a better defensive midfielder, but his team had more need from a centre-back. But if he played defensive midfield for his entire career, I think he'd be a lot more highly thought of. He's still very fondly remembered. He had a great career for Barcelona, but I think he was always better as a holding midfielder. Uh, Into Group E, we'll start with Belgium. Luis Oliveira stands out. He was really good for that Fiorentina team that had Rui Costa and Badastuta. Uh, Luke Nillis, who was really, really good, spent most of his career with Anderlecht and then PSV, came to Aston Villa, played three games, and in the third game was involved in an incident with... Was it Richard Wright? I want to say it was Richard Wright, a young Richard Wright... And his leg got snapped in the most horrendous way possible. And he never played again. Um, he'd been Ronaldo's strike partner at PSV. Uh, yeah, at PSV. And they were they were sensational together. Um, and Ruud van Nistelrooy adored him as well, which will tell you a lot about what he was. That kind of second striker who could pull the strings. Like a, this is going to sound disrespectful. I don't mean to be like a poor man's Burkamp, but he was a very good player. Um, Mabo Penza was a very exciting player who never quite figured it all out. His brother Emil was also decent. Uh, Enzo Schifo, I would still argue probably the best Belgian player of all time is Enzo Schifo. Now, people will say KDB and Hazard and whatever else, but Enzo Schifo was special. Really, really special. Um... Just a, a proper, talented, playmaking midfielder. Philippe Clement has probably gained more notice as a manager than he did as a player. Uh, that's pretty much it in that squad. Mexico, Jorge Campos. Jorge Campos is one of the great stars of the of the of the nineties because he was a lunatic. Um, often played up front for his club team. Wore the most outrageous. Costumes is the <laughs> kits is not the word. Costumes is the word. Um, <laughs> what player? What a goalkeeper! Five nine, great athleticism, but a, a lunatic. Uh, who else is in this? Who else is in this squad for Mexico at this World Cup? That's worth. Uh, Blanco, the left winger, he was lots of fun, also a little bit crazy. 
that's pretty much it. Uh, the Netherlands, Edwin van der Sar, Michael Reitziger, Jap Stam, Frank de Boer, Arthur Newman was a solid left back, not great, but solid. That's a pretty strong defence and goalkeeper. Wim Young, Ronald de Boer, Clarence Sador, Philippe Koku, that's a pretty strong midfield. And then Burkamp and a young Clivert. That's a pretty, pretty good team. Now, that wasn't always the starting 11, obviously, because you've got Philippe Koku, who was very good. You've got Mark Overmars, who was great. Winston Bogart was in the squad. Young Edgar, well, Edgar Davids was 25, actually, at this point. But hadn't fully established himself as the number one starter. I think he'd had a temper tantrum at the 96 Euros. And I think he was still trying to repay for his sins. Uh, Pierre van Hoydonk was great for Celtic, was good for Forrest, went on strike and was never quite the same. Ed De Hoy, pretty pretty solid goalkeeper. Uh, Gio van Bronckhorst, Aaron Vinter, just a guy that could play anywhere and be good. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Leeds, Chelsea. I want to say Borough, but I'm not 100% certain he played for Borough. He did play for Borough. He also played for Charlton and Cardiff, and I don't remember either of those tenures. Um, but he was great at Leeds, and then he went to... Took him off a year to settle, had a great second season, went to Atleti, had a year there and then came back to Chelsea because, you know, money. Um, and Rude Hesp, if I'm not mistaken, has become quite a successful goalkeeping coach. Quality squad for the Dutch. Don't think I know anybody from the South Korean squad. Uh, we're going to take a safe bet and say No. The Germans, I've talked about this German team and what they did in 96. And much of the same squad is back, but Matthias Sammer is not because his knee had given up on him. Uh, Christian Vorns, Jörg Heinrich, Jürgen Kohler, Thomas Helmer, Olaf Thon, Andy Muller, Lothar Matthias. It's an old German squad. The youngest players... Are there's two 24 year olds in Didi Haman and Jens Jeremies, uh, who actually would have been a good fit in that team yesterday of players that played with their hair on fire. There's a 25 year old Marcus Babel and a 26 year old Christian Verns, and everybody else is 28 or older. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 10, 11, 12. 12 of the 22 are 30 or older. So experience was absolutely the order of the day. Uh, Mateus was back in the squad at this point. He'd come back in and replace Zammer. It didn't quite work as well. Lothar Mateus, historically, is a greater player than Matthias Zammer. As a sweeper, Zammer was significantly better. Just had a bit more height, a bit more mobility. At this point, because Mateus is, is 37 at this point. Zammer, when he moved to sweeper, was mid-20s. Uh, Lothar was well into his 30s when he did it. So he didn't have the same mobility he'd had in his early years when he was a central midfielder. That Lothar would have been ridiculous as a sweeper. But Zammer was also just bigger and better in the air. Um, it's a good squad, but obviously it, they're aging past the point of being real contenders. Uh, for Iran, I mean, Ali Diaz is the, is the only player there that 
I can think of that I would have had any real awareness of. The USA, you've got Brad Friedel, Eddie Pope, who remains one of my favorite defenders who never played in Europe. Um, I just always thought he was really good. Whenever I watch MLS, and it wasn't a whole lot because it was, you know, limited access. But for DC United and then for Metro Stars and Real Salt Lake, anytime I saw him play, I was impressed. Just a good all-round cultured defender, good on the ball, quick, had some injury issues, but I, I don't really know why he never made the move across the pond. Um, he is now the sporting director of the Carolina Corps who will play in the MLS Next Pro, which is basically going to be like the the G League. It's a development league where the major clubs will have like a, a farm team, like a, a reserve team. So it's basically like the Premier League 2. That's what I'm getting from that. Um, that's so that's cool. Good for him. Good for him. He's he's been worked as an agent. He was director of player relations for the players' union. Good for him. Always a fan. Always a fan of Eddie Pope. Uh, Thomas Dooley, Roy Wegerly. He's been around a long, long time at this point. Well past his best. Joe Max Moore was a good player. Jurgen Sommer was a solid goalkeeper. Marcelo Balboa was a bit of a yard dog. Casey Keller was solid. Brian McBride. Claudia Rain is the best player in that squad, I think, other than Eddie Pope. Uh, Alexi Lalas, who I, I... If anyone can explain to me how he won 96 caps, I, I'd love an explanation. I genuinely love an explanation. Because I never thought he was any good. He looked the part with the big red hair and the big beard, and I thought he was shit. Um, as bad as he has been as a commentator, I thought he was pretty much that bad. And I see his uh, his political views are atrocious as well. So, But I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, have I just closed that? I have because I'm an idiot. Right, let's get back in. Where was I? I was on... Group F, so uh, Yugoslavia. Now, at this point, obviously, it's more Serbia than Yugoslavia because Croatia have broken off, Bosnia-Herzegovina have broken off, but there's still so much talent in this team. Uh, you've got Vladimir Jugovic in his prime, tremendous player. Dejan Savicevic, one of the, the best players ever to come out of that region of the world. Predrag Mijatovic, at that point, was probably a top 10 player in, in the world. Dragan Stojkovic was an amazing player. Sinisa Mihailovic was still in his prime. Slavo Milosevic was at Aston Villa, missing chances galore. A young Dejan Stankovic was in the squad. He would go on to Lazio, where he was part of their title-winning team, along with uh, Sinisa Mihailovic, who'd make the move from Sampdoria. Darko Kovacic was, he'd been at Sheffield Wednesday, hadn't done great, had moved on to Real Sociedad. I want to say Nihat. Was it Nihat was the, the, the Turkish striker who was playing alongside him in that Sociedad team? Is that him, Nihat Kovacic? 
that's him, isn't it? Mihat Kivachi, who is a commentator apparently now. Yes, that's him. Now, this is obviously before, because Nihat was there from 02 on. Kovacic went there. Kovacic was there, left, went to Juve, then had a spell at Lazio, and then went back to Sociedad. So it's in the second spell there where him and Nihat link up, and they're, they were brilliant together. Um so that's always a nice little thing to pop into your head as a good a good strike partnership. Uh, group G, we've got Colombia. So Ivan Cordoba, who at this point wasn't known to anybody, would, would be known to everybody by the time he retired. Great defender for Inter Milan. Um, you've still got Carlos Valderrama, one of the best playmakers of all time. Festino Espria. Take most of what I said for Edmundo and you can apply it to him. Hamilton Rickard, who I thought was underrated, uh, played for Middlesbrough. Uh, Freddie Rincon was always a, a fun midfielder to watch play. And there's no one else there. Um, <clears throat> I don't need to talk in detail about any of the English team, but we've got Seaman, Campbell, Lassau, Ince, Adams, Southgate, Beckham, Batty, she- uh, Shearer, Sheringham, McManaman, Gary Neville, Nigel Martin, Darren Anderton, Paul Merson, Paul Scholes, Rob Lee, Martin Keown, Les Ferdinand, Michael Owen, Rio Ferdinand, who should not have been called up at that point. There was better centre-backs at that point than a 19-year-old Rio, who was only really brought along, I think, just for the experience. And Tim Flowers. Um, the goalkeepers, I mean, Seaman, Martin and Flowers. That's, that's very, very strong. Centre-backs, Campbell, Adams, Southgate, Keown, and then obviously Rio. But Rio's very much the fifth centre-back at that point. There's a really strong team. Bit, bit weak at full-back. Neville and Lasso, good but not great. And there's no depth at all outside of them. But England played often with wing-backs, so Anderton could play as a wing-back uh, and do a job. Uh, Romania, you still got Georgie Hadji. Again, he's past his best. He's in his 30s, but he was a great, great player. Uh, Moldovan, who was at Coventry, he was a decent player. Uh, Ili Dimitrescu, at this point, was playing in Mexico. I I loved him when he was at Spurs. Um, Jika Popescu is probably my favourite player from that squad. By this point, he's at Galatasaray. He's another one of those sweeper, centre-back, defensive midfielders. Again, I thought defensive midfield or sweeper suited him a bit more. He's really good in the ball, super intelligent. Surprised he didn't go into management. He did go to prison, though. Um, he went to prison for tax evasion and money laundering. Um, so, so there's that. Um That's crazy. He served he served 18 months in prison. That's that's nuts. He's now the chairman of a club. Um he, he was such a good player. I had no idea he'd been in prison. Such a good player. 
Who else is in this squad that's worth? Dan Petrescu was really underrated right back for a long time in the Premier League. Another one that you just put in and he just do you a really good job. Foggia, Genoa, Sheffield Wednesday brought him to England. Then Chelsea was kind of where he he really made his name. Um, or in terms of in England, like he'd, he'd made his name long before that with, with Stoya, with Foggy and with, with Genoa. Um, played for Bradford, played for Southampton. He's gone on and managed for years and years and years. He's been managing for 20 odd years and he's managed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 different managerial jobs. One was a, as an assistant uh, with National Bucharest. Um, now he has managed the same club a couple of times. Studenesque, he managed them twice. Uh, he managed Cluj three different times. He's currently managing in South Korea. I wish him well. I wish him well. I always like Dan Petrescu. Uh, Tunisia. There's nobody there that's jumping out at me that I would remember. Uh, Argentina. Carlos Roa, who, if I'm not mistaken, gave up football to go and find God or something along those lines. Um, a strange individual, always preaching, always preaching. Uh, Roberto Ayala, at this point, he's at Napoli. This is before he goes to Valencia and becomes really well known. Great defender for, what was he, 5'8, maybe? There's no way he was 5'10". He was 5'8 at most. And yet he was just such an absolute dog that teams, you just couldn't bully him in any way. But he was such a good player. Um, Matthias Almeida, really good defensive midfielder. Roberto Sensini could play defensive midfielder or centre-back. He was slightly better as a centre-back. Claudio Lopez, brilliant player for Valencia, was really good for Lazio. El Cholo, was the captain of the squad. He was just, just another dog in that midfield. Uh, Gabby Balastuda. Then we get the fun names. Ariel Ortega. He was tremendous. Juan Sebastian Veron. Adored him. Abel Balbo, long-time quality forward in Serie A. Hernan Crespo would go on to be a great player. And my favourite player in the squad is Javier Zanetti. Um... Marcelo Gallardo is also in that squad and he might be a name to keep an eye on in terms of management over the next little while because there's a few clubs I think might start looking at him. Uh, Croatia, you've got Igor Stimak, really, really good centre-back. Slavin Bilic, really good centre-back, but an actor as well. Uh, Asanovic, he was tremendous. Davor Suker was great. Zvonimir Boban was great. Mario Stanic was a good player. Zvonimir Solda was a good player. Igor Tudor was a good player. He's now, a, I think he's an, a mediocre manager, but teams like the way he plays. Robert Yarny, really good left back, uh, who caused a bit of consternation when he signed for Coventry after this World Cup from Real Betis, then decided he didn't want to be there. He wanted to go to Real Madrid. But what, had, what it turned out it happened was, basically, he'd had the offer from Real. Betis said, we're not selling you to them. So he agreed to join Coventry and then just turned around and said, no, no, I want to, I want to go. And then Coventry sold him at a profit. So 
it may well be that Coventry had been in on it and saw a chance to make a quick 800 grand, but I, I don't know for certain. Uh, I just know it was weird at the time. Dario Simic would go on to be a very good right-back or centre-back uh, for a bunch of clubs across his career. And then we had the Raggae Boys, Jamaica. Marcus Gale uh, of Wimbledon, really good player. Fitzroy Simpson was a decent player. Robbie Earl, better player than, than, than Pundit for certain. Frank Sinclair was a really good Premier League defender in the 90s. Uh, Daryl Powell was a good player. Dion Burton was decent. We've got some quality players there. There was a, a real push prior to this tournament, after they'd already qualified, to recruit from the Premier League a lot of the players that had Jamaican heritage. And there really was a strong, strong push on it. And Robbie Earl was sort of the one driving the car on it, so to speak. You could see him going up to players during games and after games and trying to convince them to join the Jamaican uh, cause. And obviously it worked because he got a bunch of them on board. Um, <clears throat> then the Japanese... Uh, no, no, there's no one there. Do you know, I'm actually looking at the time. I'm not going to get Euro 2000 done today. So I think I'll do that next week. But um, we'll carry on with where we go. We'll start in Group A. Brazil, Norway, Morocco and Scotland. Scotland, very unfortunate to lose the opening game, their opening game against Brazil. Cesar Sampao scored early for the Brazilians, four minutes in. John Collins equalised on 38 minutes in the penalty spot. And it looked like Scotland were going to just frustrate Brazil and get a result here. 73 minutes, Tom Boyd put through his own net. Really, really unfortunate. Scotland had right to feel devastated. They had put in an incredible shift. Brazil just couldn't find a way to break them down, despite the talent that they had in the squad, those two fullbacks, and they were fullbacks then, not wingbacks, bombing forward, Rivaldo and Giovanni playing as two number 10s. They were just so much fun. Uh, Ronald, Ro- Ronaldo and Bebeto sta- started up front, and again, you had Ronaldo doing everything and Bebeto playing around him, and it was just, it was, they were fun to watch, and Scotland just frustrated them. Three at the back, flat five in midfield, graft and graft and graft for days. The two strikers were dropping back in and pressing Dunga in midfield and not allowing him to get the ball progressive. So Brazil were having to play backwards and then out. And as they played out, Scotland were just pushing up onto the fullbacks and forcing them back. And Brazil really did struggle. Uh, Morocco 2, Norway 2. Then in the second round of games, we get Scotland 1, Norway 1. Uh, Craig Burley with the Scottish goal and Havard Flow, not Tori Andre, Havard Flow got the uh, the Norwegian goal. Brazil wiped the floor with Morocco, 3-0, Ronaldo, Rivaldo and Bebeto. Then Scotland took on Morocco and shit the bed, really. Um, 3-0 to Morocco, Basir with two, Hada with one. I think the Scots had just run out of steam. They put in so much work in the first two games. I think they just ran out of steam. And then <laughs> Brazil, in probably the biggest surprise of the tournament, though they had rotated a couple of players, Brazil lost to Norway 2-1. Uh, they went 1-0 up through Bebeto with a late goal. Tori Andre Flo and then Rectal scored 
to give Norway a massive shock shock win. And what that meant was that Norway ended up qualifying when nobody expected them to. Going into that final day, the expectation was Brazil will win and Scotland might just get a draw here and maybe they can get themselves through. Instead, Scotland crapped themselves and Brazil somehow managed to lose to Norway. And Morocco, despite their big win over Scotland, were bounced out, uh, which, again, was probably the last outcome anybody had, was that Morocco, would, or that, that Norway, rather, would, would get through. In Group B, Italy and Chile played out a 2-2 draw. Vieri put Italy one up. Salah scored twice to put Chile in front. Roberto Baggio with a late penalty to get, get Italy the draw. And Njanka scored for Cameroon to put them one up against Austria. But Polster scored with one of the last kicks of the ball to grab an equaliser. Then it was Chile, Austria. Salah scores again. And again, Austria equalised in stoppage time. Vastic gives them the draw. Italy beat Cameroon 3-0. Di Biagio and two from Christian Vieri. Then Italy beat Austria 2-1 in the final game in their in their final game. Vieri scores again. Baggio scores in the 90 minute, but just because they've made a habit of it, Austria score again in stoppage time. I would bet this is the only time in history in a major international tournament that a team has scored in stoppage time in all three group games. And they're the only goals they scored. And that's what Austria did. Uh, Chile drew 1-1 with Cameroon in their final game. Sierra scored for uh, for Chile and Mbomo. Mboma? Mboma scored for Cameroon. Italy threw. Chile sneaked through in second place off the back of three straight draws. Austria and Cameroon drew two and lost one each. And out they go. On to Group C. <coughs> Denmark beat Saudi Arabia 1-0 with Reaper scoring the only goal of the game. Um, France beat South Africa 3-0. Christophe Dugarry, who started the tournament as the starting nine, scored the first goal. Issa got the second as an own goal, and then Thierry Henry wrapped it up. On to the second round, South Africa won, Denmark won. Um, Alan Nielsen, formerly of Spurs, scored the opener for Denmark. Benny McCarthy equalised against the Saudis. France won 4-0, two from Henri, one from Trezeguet, one's from Byzantin Lazarazu. There is, um, I don't say it's a myth, but there is this idea that Henri was brilliant at this World Cup. He did very much stat pad in those group stage games against the mediocre teams um, and wasn't as impactful afterwards. That game was mostly notable for Zidane getting sent off. Italy were, or France were 2-0 up, Zidane got sent off and they scored two more goals. Um, in the final games, then France two, Denmark one, Jorkaev and Petit with the goals, Laudrup with a penalty for Denmark as consolation. Uh, South Africa two, Saudi Arabia two, Bartlett got both for South Africa, Al and Al Tunanian scored for the Saudis. So we ended up with France top nine points, Denmark getting through in second place, South Africa and Saudi Arabia bouncing out. In Group D, Paraguay nil, Bulgaria nil. 
in a game that I think people might still be asleep from watching. Then Spain 2, Nigeria 3. And what was most surprising is Spain went ahead twice in this game. Hierro scored, Nigeria equalized, Raul scored, Zubi Zaretta scored an own goal, and then Sunday Olise got the winner for Nigeria. In the second round of games, Nigeria beat Bulgaria 1-0, Ikpeda with the only goal of the game, Spain 0, Paraguay 0. Again, there's probably people still asleep. Then Paraguay beat Nigeria 3-1. Ayala, Benitez and Cordoza with the goals. Oruma with the only goal for Nigeria. Spain beat Bulgaria 6-1 as they finally came alive. Hierro, Enrique, two from Orientes, an own goal by Bashev and Kiko with the goals there. However, it wasn't enough. Spain finished third and bounced out. They were the only top-seeded team in the competition not to A, top the group, and B, qualify for the next round. Nigeria go through as as group winners. Paraguay through in second place. Spain and Bulgaria are out. In Group E, we have some excitement. South Korea won Mexico three. Uh, Two goals in that one for Luis Hernandez. Peleas with the other one. Pak Sokju with the only goal for South Korea. Netherlands versus Belgium. Uh, a tense nil-nil draw. Patrick Clivert was sent off. Belgium 2, Mexico 2. Wilmots with both goals for Belgium. Aspe and Blanco with the goals for Mexico. The Netherlands hammered South Korea 5-0. Koku, Overmars, Burkamp, Van Hoydonk and Ronald De Boer as they filled their boots. And then we get Netherlands 2, Mexico 2. Koku and De Boer had put, Ronald De Boer had put the Netherlands 2-0 up. Uh, Pelaez and Hernandez got Mexico back on level pegging and we ended with a draw. Luke Nillis scored Belgium's goal in a 1-1 draw with South Korea. Yu Sang Chul with the equaliser for South Korea. So the Netherlands go through, Mexico go through, out go Belgium and South Korea. On to Group F. Yugoslavia won Iran nil. Mihailovic with the only goal of the game. Germany 2, the United States 0. Andy Muller and Jurgen Klinsmann with the goals there. Germany 2, Yugoslavia 2. Mijatovic and Stojkovic had put Yugoslavia 2-0 up. Mihailovic scored an own goal to get Germany back into it. And then Oliver Bierhoff, who'd been the hero in 96, managed to get the equaliser. Um and give Germany a point. Worth noting that Lothar Mateus, whose greatest performance of his career came against Yugoslavia eight years previously, came off the bench at half time. And despite the fact that Stoichkovic scored about six minutes later, Mateus' introduction did change that game and really did ramp the Germans up quite well. Um, the United States won Iran nil, sorry, Iran two. So USA losing to Germany and Iran. That definitely stung. Um, Estile and Magdavikia, but I've butchered that. Madavikia, Madavikia. Uh, they got the goals for Iran. Brian McBride got a consolation for the States. Germany two, Iran nil. Bierhoff and Klinsmann get the goals. Mateus is back in the starting eleven, and Germany looked more like a team. And then the USA rounding out a very disappointing World Cup. 
losing 1-0 to Yugoslavia with the goal scored by a fellow whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Um, Germany and Yugoslavia go through seven points each, Iran with three points, and the United States with a firm zero going out. On to Group G. This one brought us some, some surprises. So England beat Tunisia 2-0, Alan Shearer and Paul Scholes. Romania beat Colombia 1-0 with uh, Adrian Illy scoring the only goal of the game. Colombia beat Tunisia 1-0, Presadio with the only goal. Romania beat England 2-1. Moldovan put them one up. Michael Owen equalizes coming off the bench. And Dan Petrescu gets a last-minute winner as Romania beat England 2-1. The England team in that game, Gary Neville actually played as the right-side centre-back, which I'd completely forgotten. Saul Campbell and Tony Adams, the other two. Anderton and, and Lasseau were the wing-backs, which is what I said earlier. And then Paul Ince actually... Paul Ince cracked the bone in his ankle in this game, like chipped the bone in his ankle, went off and would come back and play later, like in the next game. They like didn't miss any time. Uh, maybe not in the next game. Did he play the... That was that was their last game. Yeah, he came back and played the next game against Colombia. And then he played against Argentina as well with a chip bone on his ankle. Paul Ince was tough. Um, but he scolds the 10, Sheringham Shearer. It was Sheringham would lose a spot to to Mike alone as the tournament went on. Uh, Columbia nil, England two, Anderton and Beckham with the goals. There's a couple, Beck, Beckham's goal in that one's a belter. Anderton's is not bad either. Uh, Beckham started in place of Batty and Owen had come in in place of Sheringham and England looked, looked quite fun. Uh, and finally, Romania won, Tunisia won, Moldovan scored for Romania, Soya scored for uh, Moldovan scored for Romania. So, um, Soya scored for Tunisia. That's what I'm trying to say. Romania topped the group <clears throat> with seven points. England with six. Colombia and Tunisia go out. And finally then, Group H. The thing about the top seeds not topping the groups can't have been true then because England didn't top the group. So I don't know why I thought that. But anyway, England, they, they did progress. Anyway, uh, Group H. Argentina 1, Japan 0. Gabi Batistuta with the only goal of the game. Croatia 3, Jamaica 1. Stanich Prozanecki, who I loved. Davros Suker with the goals. Robbie Earl with a consolation for the Jamaicans. Croatia 1, Japan 0. Davros Suker again. Argentina 5, Jamaica 0. 2 from Ariel Ortega. 3 from Gabi Batistuta. It got a bit mean. They 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 just they battered them. They absolutely battered the Jamaicans. Uh, then Argentina beat Croatia one nil with Pineda getting the only goal. But Jamaica got their World Cup victory, beating Japan two one. Whitmore, Theodore Whitmore with both goals. Nakayama with the consolation for the Japanese. So Argentina top, Croatia second. Jamaica and Japan go home, but Jamaica got their World Cup win. And frankly, that was worth more to them than anything else because they were expected to be whipping boys and they came and put people on notice that they weren't just going to roll over. 
In the round of 16, Italy beat Norway 1-0. Christian Vieri with the only goal of the game. I'm almost certain that's the game in which Paluca made that save. The more I think about it, I'm almost certain it's that game. I think it's Tori Andre Flo as well. I think it's a cross comes in, Flo heads it down, and somehow Paluca gets down and saves it. I'm almost certain. I might have to watch highlights after this. Uh, they might even show it in the highlights. Uh, Brazil beat Chile 4 1. Uh, Cesar Sampao scored twice. Ronaldo scored twice. Alexi. Oh, Alexi, Marcelo Salas got the consolation for Chile. It's Chile go out, no shame in it. They'd put forward a really good effort. Uh, France won Paraguay nil. Laurent Blanc with a golden goal. You've no idea how much I wanted Paraguay to win that game, purely because Chilever was just so much of a lunatic that I just wanted to see him carry on. Um, the antics were great crack. Notable, this is France without Zidane, remember, because he's still suspended. But um, yeah, France threw 1-0. Golden goal scored by Laurent Blanc. Denmark 4, Nigeria 0. Denmark, who'd scraped through the groups, really, looked like the real deal here. Um, Peter Muller, Brian Laudrup, Ebe Sand, who was a pretty good striker, and Thomas Halveg with the goals. Uh, Babat Ngida with the consolation for Nigeria. Germany 2, Mexico 1. Jurgen Klinsmann and Oliver Bierhoff again after Mexico had gone 1-0 up through Hernandez. The Netherlands 2, Yugoslavia 1. Dennis Burkamp and Edgar David scoring for the Netherlands. The chap who scored... In the last game for the Yugoslavs, whose name I wasn't going to pronounce then, I'm still not going to pronounce it now. He scored again. Romania nil, Croatia won. Davor Sukar with a penalty just on the stroke of half time to send the Croats through. And then the game that is most remembered and most talked about, it's Argentina 2, England 2. Badastuda scores a penalty on five minutes, Argentina are ahead. Shearer scores a penalty on nine minutes. England are ahead. Michael Owen announces himself to the world with an incredible goal on 16 minutes. Just on the brink of half time, Argentina respond with one of the best set piece goals you'll ever see. So brilliantly worked. Javier Zanetti ends up finishing past David Seaman and makes it 2-2. And this game is incredible to that point. And then two minutes into the second half, David Beckham does the dumbest thing imaginable. After getting fouled, he's lying on the floor. He kicks out his leg. It's Largely harmless. It's never going to injure anybody. He kicks Diego Simeone. The referee sees it and he sends Beckham off. And this prompted the headline about the 10 fearless lions and one stupid boy. 
it was so unfortunate because Beckham was playing really well. Beckham and Batty was the midfield pairing. Anderton and Lasso was the wing backs. And Beckham or Beckham and Ince rather. Batty came off the bench late in the game. Uh, Beckham and Ince were brilliant, absolutely brilliant together. And Ince got booked on 10 minutes in that game and continued to do what Paul Ince did and just played on the tightrope. It's one of the great Paul Ince performances. And then Skulls behind Owen and Shearer. That was a really, really good England team. Um, but it was also a really good Argentinian team. Zanetti and Shamata's fullbacks. Vivas and Ayala in the middle. Almeida holding the midfield. Simeone and Varon as the engine. Our Ortega as a 10 behind Claudio Lopez playing just off. Badastuta. You, know, you see the subs coming on. Crespo, Gallardo and Sergio Berti. For England, it was Southgate, Merson and Batty. Merson's an attacking player, but Southgate and Batty were defensive changes because England played with 10 men for the entirety of the second half and the entirety of the penalty of the, of the extra time. And then we end up going to penalties. Berti scores, Shearer scores, Crespo misses. And you think England might just pull this out, but then Paul Ince misses. And it was so unfortunate because he'd been so good in this competition. Then Varon scores, Merson scores, Gallardo scores, Owen scores, Ayala scores, and then David Batty. And why it was David Batty, I have no idea. To this day, I don't understand why David Batty was on that next penalty. I could understand if he was on the 6th or 7th, but why was he on the 5th? It just didn't make sense to me. Now, Beckham probably would have been on one of the top five had he still been on the pitch. Anderton, Lesseau and Scholes, you'd imagine, would have been among the top five. So I suppose when you look at it, it's, it's Batty. Southgate, who'd missed in 96, was taking the last one. Neville wouldn't have had the bottle for it. So I suppose it is Batty, Adams or Campbell. I think I'd have sent up Tony Adams and just hold him to hit it as hard as he could. England were at a huge disadvantage going into that penalty shootout. That, that's all that can, can really be said. Um, but yeah, Argentina go through on penalties and England are out. To the quarterfinals, Italy nil, France nil. After 90 minutes, after 120 minutes, this is definitely the game Pagliuca makes one of the great saves in. He's off his line a little bit. It's a lofted, curling shot that's dipping under the crossbar and somehow he gets back, gets up and flicks it over. It's outrageous save. Uh, in the penalty shootout, Zidane scores, Roberto Baggio scores, Lazarazu misses, Albertini misses, Trezeguet scores, Costa Curtis scores, Henri scores, Vieri sco- scores, Laurent Blanc scores, and DiBiagio misses. So it went pretty much the same way as the, the England penalty shootout. Um, second miss for both teams and the last kicker missed for the losing team. Uh, also, the winning penalty for the winning team was scored by a centre-back, Ayala and Blanc. So it, that means absolutely nothing, but it is what it is. Um, that was a really tense game. France, at this point, don't look like World Cup winners. Defensively, they look rock solid. Touran Blanc, Desailly, 
Mazarazu. They look rock solid. Midfield, Deschamps, Karambu, Petit. Rock solid. Zidane behind Jorkaev and Givarch. And Givarch just isn't giving you goals. But he works so hard. And France are clearly trying to grind their way through. Uh, Brazil 3, Denmark 2. Denmark were really unfortunate in this game. They went 1-0 up through Jorgensen. Bebeto equalised. Rivaldo put Brazil 2-1 up. Laudrup equalised and then Rivaldo scored the winner to send them through. <clears throat> Denmark did a brilliant job of negating Ronaldo by playing one in front, one behind and never letting the ball get to or, or limiting how much the ball could get to him and where it would get to him. And when he got it, how much space he had. They just didn't let him turn on it. They were really, really good. Uh, and then the game of the round once again involves Argentina. Once again is a game that has a notable and memorable red card. It's Netherlands 2, Argentina 1. Patrick Clivert put the Netherlands 1 up on 12 minutes. Claudio Lopez equalised on 17. And then Dennis Burkamp scores probably the goal of the tournament. Ariel Ortega is sent off on 87. He's booked on 86 minutes, gets involved in a kerfuffle, steps to Van der Sar and kind of touches the top of his bottom of Van der Sar's chin with his forehead. It's it, it it's bizarre. It's a red card. Off he goes. Um, it's it's it's, stup- it's stupidity. It's the same thing as the Beckham thing. It's utter stupidity. And four months later, uh, Frank De Boer steps out of defence and plays this sumptuous pass left to right to to the right side of the penalty area. Dennis Burkamp runs onto it. The first touch is it, it should be illegal to be that good at football. The second touch is great. The finish is outstanding. It's one of the great World Cup goals, and the Netherlands are through. And then we get the biggest surprise of the round, Croatia 3, Germany 0. Robert Yarny opens the scoring just in the stroke of half time. Vlajovic makes it 2 on 80, on 80 minutes. The Germans are really chasing the game at this point. And then Davor Suker makes it 3 on 85. Now, the Germans had gone down to 10 men in the 40th minute. Christian Vorns had been sent off. And from there, they were really, really chasing the game. I did think Bertie Vokes made a mistake in how he managed the game. He didn't bring on a centre-back to replace Vorns. He tried to rejig things. It just didn't work. Um, and, and Croatia, to their credit, took them apart. Into the semi-finals we go. And these were both really tense, really close games. Brazil won, Netherlands won. Ronaldo scores on 46. Clivert scores on 87. On to penalties. Ronaldo scores, Frank de Boer scores. Rivaldo scores, Burkamp scores. Emerson scores. Philippe Koku, who's filling in at left back in this game, misses. Dunga scores, Ronald de Boer misses, and Brazil are through 4-2 on penalties. In the other semi-final, it's France versus Croatia. Davor Suker opens the scoring and puts France, puts Croatia one up. 
He's had an unbelievable tournament. Lillian Turam equalizes a minute later, and then Lillian Turam again on 70 minutes gives France the victory. Lillian Turam played 142 games for France. He scored two goals, and both of them were in a World Cup semi-final. That, my friends, is a big game player. On 74 minutes, Laurent Blanc was sent off. One of the most farcical red cards you've ever seen. And Slavin Bilic should, to this day, 25 years later, still be ashamed of himself for his play acting. And it, it's such a shame because they, it, it ruined a lot of the good faith and, and the goodwill towards the Croatians, who'd been such a joy at Euro 96, such a joy at this tournament. And then his actions just sort of ruined it all. That Croatian team is excellent, though. The back three, Stimac is a sweeper, Bilic and Simic as the man markers. Mario Stanic, who's a more of a midfielder than a fullback, playing as a wingback. Robert Yarny, perfectly suited as a left wingback. Uh, Soldo sitting and holding the midfield. Asanovic pulling the strings. And then Boban just doing Boban things and being incredible. Uh, Vlajevic is probably the only non-star in the outfield 11. And Davor Sukar up front was just, just different class. Prozanecki came on uh, in the last minute. He he hadn't really had the fitness to play a whole lot in the tournament. In the second and third place playoff, Croatia began their whole thing of if we get out of the groups, we're going to finish third in World Cups. Um, Prozanecki scored on 14 minutes. Bolo Zenden equalised on 22. I'm not sure if that's the game where Bolo Zenden tried to do the the front flip celebration and fell flat in his face, but I think it might be. And then um, Davor Sukar, who, again, just what an incredible tournament, on 36 minutes, getting the lead goal and what would turn out to be the winning goal for Croatia. Genuinely such a fun team. Both teams rotated, didn't play their best teams, but fun game. And on we go to the final. Now, before we get to the final, I'm going to have a look at a couple of things. Uh, Golden Boot, Davor Sucre with six. Badastuta and Vieri got five each. Ronaldo, Salas and Luis Hernandez got four. All very, very good players. Uh, we had a lot of red cards in the tournament. A lot of red cards. So Ortega, Zidane, Vorns, Clivert, Craig Burley, Beckham, Blanc, Desai. There was a lot of red cards in this tournament. Um, the Golden Ball for Best Player went to Ronaldo. The Yashin Award for Best Goalkeeper went to Barthez. The Fair Play Trophy went to... England and France. This one I didn't understand. The most entertaining team went to France. It was absolutely Croatia, but that's what was what was given. The all-star team, so it was a squad of 16 rather than 11 that was picked. Barthez and Chilavera as the goalkeepers, no debate, absolutely no debate. Um... Defenders, Roberto Carlos, Marcel Desi, Lillian Turam, Frank De Boer, and Carlos Gamara. No debate. That's absolutely fine. 
Midfielders, Dunga, Rivaldo, Laudrup, Michael, Zidane and Davids. That's absolutely fine. And up front, Ronaldo, Suker, Brian Laudrup and Dennis Burkamp. That's about the best I've ever seen in terms of representing who did and didn't play well at a tournament. Now, the Croats could feel slightly aggrieved to only have Davor Suker selected because Robert Yarny was also immense at this competition. Igor Stimak was brilliant through this competition, but I'm not going to argue too much. On to the final. Before the final, in the build-up, there starts to be some rumours that Ronaldo's not going to play. There's mixed reporting, and it's all on the news. Back then, we don't have the internet, we don't have Twitter, we don't have any of that. So it's like news bulletins at like three in the afternoon saying that he might not play. In the end, the teams come out. Brazil, Tafarel, Cafu, Bayano, Aldair, Carlos, Dunga, Simpao, Leonardo, Rivaldo, Bebeto, Ronaldo. France, Barthez, Turam, Leboeuf, Desai, Lazarazu. Leboeuf has to come in for Blanc, who's suspended. Deschamps, Carambou, Petit. Zidane, Djorkaev, and Givarch. Very much a 4-3-2-1 from the French and very much a 4-box-2 from Brazil. As the game starts, it's pretty clear Ronaldo doesn't look like he's he's in the game at all. As we go on, Zidane scores on 27 minutes, France go one up. And just in the stroke of halftime, the same player makes it two. France had been the better team in the first half, but Brazil looked more threatening when they attacked. But Ronaldo clearly didn't look at the races. Just looked like he he didn't want to be there. I'm still to this day unsure why he played the full 90, because I think he should have been hauled off at halftime. At halftime, they took off Leonardo, who'd had a pretty poor game, it must be said, but they took him off and brought on Danielson. I think Edmundo should have come on for Ronaldo at that point as well. It also bothers me to this day that Brazil only made two of their three substitutions. They didn't do enough to try and force the issue to get back in the game. Marcel Desailly was sent off on 68 minutes for a second bookable offence. And France, just very calm, very comfortable, slotted Manu Petit back to centre-back. Patrick Vieira would come on a few minutes later in midfield. And they'd just do their thing. They took off Djorkaev. They took off... um, Yeah, Djorkaev came on, came off for, for, uh, Vieri, for Vieira. Um, they brought on Dugari for Givarch just before the, uh, just before the red card. Bogassian had come on because Karambu was out on his feet. So he'd, he'd made them more solid. So even with the red card, they were just really, really strong, really strong defensively. Brazil couldn't break them down. France had more shots. Brazil had more shots on target. 
but Brazil were sloppy. And it was because Ronaldo just wasn't in the game at all. Ball was bouncing. It was so it was so weird to watch. If you watch it back now, it's not as weird. It just looks like a guy having a bad game. But if you if you put it in the context of that time when he's the best player in the world, like imagine you just turned on your TV tomorrow and Lionel Messi was playing and the ball was just bouncing off him like his foot was a curb or something. You'd be a bit concerned. So as it turns out, he'd had a seizure the night before and had never had one before, didn't didn't know what, what was going on. He'd taken medication. And apparently some of the medication that he was then given post-seizure is basically what, what led to this performance. There's been reports that in the dressing room before the game, he was just completely zoned out, that he just didn't look like he was in any way in tune with reality or what was going on. And frankly, it's just really poor management by Zagallo that he was A, started, and B, played the whole 90. Uh, France would wrap it up with with uh, Emmanuel Petit on a breakaway, scoring in the 93rd minute and sending the Stade de France into absolute raptures as France finally won a World Cup. France's second major international victory after their uh, triumph in the 1984 European Championships, one that we will get to. This French team was was strong. It, it, it had some flaws. They didn't have that proven number nine. Now, Trezeguet and Henri gave them such reason for optimism. But they didn't have a nine, but they had creativity. They had graft. They had depth in all the right places. They were super strong at the back. Barthez, at this point, was still really reliable. And Emé Jacquet was just a very, very, very intelligent manager who knew how to set a team up, who knew how to game plan, would do endless amounts of research into every possible opponent, knew the strengths and weaknesses of every single team that they would go up against. Tremendous, a tremendous manager. Retired retired after this. Like, he was 57 when he retired. I would imagine he was probably offered incredible amounts of money following this to come back to management. And he just didn't. He just decided that was enough. Now, part of it, part of it was because in his early years, because he took over from Julier, who was sacked after failing to qualify in 94. Part of it was that he'd seen the, the, the shit that, and I'm cursing quite a bit today, and it, you're just going to have to deal with it. The shit that Julier put up with from the French press, and then the shit he put up with himself, he decided he didn't want Cantona around the squad in the early years. Like, he gave him a couple of opportunities and then just said, you know what, I don't like his personality, I don't like the way he, he operates. He binned him off. He decided to build the team around Zidane. That was his choice to become a primarily defensive team built around this one special playmaker and basically not look to grind the way, because that sounds like they're just like Greece in, in 04. They weren't like they, they could, they would 
systematically break teams down, but they just had to be clinical when they took the, when they got the chances. And unfortunately, they didn't have that clinical striker. So then they had to create in bulk, which is where Djurkaev becomes more and more of a factor. He was a brilliant manager. And unfortunately, just decided he'd had enough. Like He won three league titles with Bordeaux as manager back in the 80s. A couple of French Cups as well. It wasn't just like a thing where he just, this was it. He did this and nothing else. Was French manager of the year twice in the eighties, uh, both times with Bordeaux. He he done okay at Lyon, did really well with Bordeaux, winning multiple league titles. Was there nine years? Went to Montpellier, it was a disaster. Went to Nancy, it was a disaster. Then he took the job as Julie's assistant, and he took the French job and was a rampant success because he won a World Cup. Emé Jacques, he's eighty-one years of age now. I hope whatever he's doing, he's living his best life and reminding people that he won the first World Cup for France. And that's it. That is our adventure in the 1998 World Cup. Um, I did plan to do Europe 2000, but I got too caught up with the squads. There's too many good players to talk about. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll just get through the news and the gossip and then we'll be, go- we'll be done. See you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So one last thing on the... World Cup 1998. And this is just a personal thing. Uh, I was just thinking about where I was when I watched a lot of this competition and the final in particular. I was in Carlo, where my father's family are from. Uh, I used to go down most summers and spend a month, sometimes longer, depending on how long they keep me. Uh, down there, I used to just love it every summer. I absolutely adored it. Um, and I remember watching the, the final with my, my grandmother, who's one of the best camogie players that Carlo ever produced. And for those that don't know what camogie is, it's basically women's hurling. My aunt, who might be the best camogie player Carlo ever produced. Um, my uncle and a family friend, Mick Kehoe. And he used to make these incredible uh, swing sets and that out of cast iron. He made cast iron gates and all that as well. But he used to make cast iron swing sets. And we had one in my grand's back garden and he made one for me when I was a kid. And it was in my parents' back garden up until about three years ago, maybe. I think they took it down during the pandemic. They redid their garden. And uh, it's just it's just always nice to remember these type of things. So, yeah, I watched it with my aunt, my, my, my aunt Val, my uncle Mick. My, he was my grand uncle Mick. He was my granny's brother. Um my granny and, and Mickey Ho was a, was a, it was a great game. They, they loved sport. Like if you, if we were down there during the summer, Sundays were just dedicated to GAA, whether it was football or particularly hurling. They, they definitely had a far bigger fondness from hurling in that part of the country. And they'd watch whatever game was on TV. They'd listen to the games on the radio. During the week, you might go to three or four games, whether it be hurling, camogie, football, Gaelic football or women's Gaelic football around the county. Val was playing at least two games a week. It was just such a good time. Such a good time. Um, God be with the days. Uh, Anyway, on to news. And Nicolo Zaniolo of Aston Villa and Newcastle Sandro Tonali have left Italy's training camp after being told 
they are involved by an investigation by Italian prosecutors. The Italian Football Federation said they were not in the right condition to participate in the upcoming Euro 2024 qualifiers. Um, There is an investigation currently into Nicolo Fagioli, who is a Juventus midfielder, who is alleged to have used various identities to place bets on illegal websites. Tonali and Zaniolo were informed of the probe by prosecutors from Turin at Italy's National Training Centre on Thursday. So this is not good. This is not good at all. More betting scandals. Um, Kendry Paez, the young 16-year-old sensation from Ecuador, scored his first international goal and became the youngest South American to ever score in a World Cup qualifier when he bagged Ecuador's opener in a 2-1 win away to Bolivia on Thursday. Uh, Moises Caicedo set him up. Paez was bought by Chelsea during the summer for like 17 million. This article does have one uh, inaccuracy, though. It says that the earliest Paez could make his Chelsea debut is the 7th of May 2025, which is when he'll turn 18. However, that is incorrect. He can't join them until he turns 18. He cannot join them on the 7th of May 2025. He can only join them after July 1st of 2025, meaning that the first game he can play for Chelsea will be the start of the 25-26 season. But he is incredibly gifted. Uh, On to Ange Postacoglu, who became the first manager to ever win Premier League Manager of the Month twice in his first two months on the job. So congrats to him. He's had an amazing start. And Youngman Son was voted September's Player of the Month. So congrats to him as well. Uh, in one of the nicer stories going around in football, Roberto De Maio became the oldest debutant in international football at the age of 40 when he played for San Marino. That's fantastic. Genuinely fantastic. 40 years and 193 days. That's genuinely brilliant. I'm so happy for him. Uh, On to the gossip then. Bayern Munich are considering a shock move for Calvin Phillips in January. Tuchel did like him when he was at Leeds. So there might be some truth in that. Uh, Man City are keen to sign Tony Cruz when his contract expires in the summer. I Doubt it. And I also doubt he'll be willing to make the move. I think he, he'll he either retire or he might go to America. Uh, Newcastle have earmarked Emile Smith-Rowe as a potential summer transfer target. Could make some sense. He's a super talented player. Arsenal under-18 head coach Jack Wilshire is in contention to become the next manager of the Colorado Rapids in the MLS. Uh, according to The Telegraph, So that's interesting. That's not something I would have expected. They've currently got Chris Little, who's a Scottish-born coach, um, in charge there. Now, their, their general manager is actually from my hometown of Navan, uh, Porrick Smith, originally his family are. He moved away quite early. Um, where did they finish? They had a bad season. A couple of bad seasons by the looks of it. Yeah, they finished 
11th in their conference, 24th overall uh, under Robin Frazier, who the previous season did finish 10th in the conference, 18th overall. Uh, when you consider that the first year, or the, sorry, the year before that, uh, rather, they finished first in the conference and second overall. That is an incredible fall off. So Robin Fraser, having built them up from being, you know, ninth in the conference, built them up to first, then they've collapsed completely in the last two years. So unsurprising that he's gone. And uh, Jack Wiltshire might be a bit of a strange appointment, though. I think you'd be better off going with someone maybe that has a bit of experience. Manchester City are leading the race to sign Danny Olmo who also draws interest from Real Madrid, Arsenal and Chelsea. Very, very talented player. West Ham and France defender Kurt Zuma is a January target for the Saudi Pro League. Uh, The Hammers have identified Harry Maguire and Edmund Tapsapa as potential replacements. It is 90minutes.com, so I'd I'd just say it's probably crap. Uh, Saudi Pro League defender, sorry, Saudi Pro League director of football, uh, Michael Imanello has called Mohamed Salah a personal favourite of his. Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was responsible for signing Mo Salah at Chelsea. He was the technical director there at the time. Um, Man City, Arsenal and Tottenham have all been encountered with Royal Antwerp over Arthur Vermeeren. Interesting. United, Chelsea and Bayern are all monitoring Schalke's 17-year-old German midfielder, Hassan Odrago. Hmm, I don't know the player. 6-4 midfielder, box-to-box, both feet. Interesting. Oh, I remember his dad. Okay, I remember his dad. Um, His dad played for bunch of different teams in Germany, always kind of in the lower leagues, but his dad was a decent player. Uh, okay, what else have we got here? West Ham want to tie down Lucas Paqueta to a new contract. I don't see it happening, to be honest. Manchester City, Arsenal and Burnley want to sign New England Revolution and England under-19 midfielder Noel Book, uh, who was... Born in the States, in Arlington, Massachusetts, and grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, His father is British. And his dad allows him to play for England. His grandmother allows him to play for Wales. And obviously, he could play for the USA as well. I don't think I've ever seen him play. But at 18, to already be... A regular starter at the MLS level. It's pretty impressive. Um, Manchester City and Manchester United are tracking Sunderland's 16-year-old English goalkeeper, Matthew Young. He is very, very talented. Liverpool will have to fight off competition from Man City and Barcelona if they are to sign Lecce's... What? This is weird. Niger- this is written so badly. Lecce's Nigerian defender, Dane Patrick Dorgu. Um, he's not a Nigerian defender. He's he's very much a Danish defender. He was born in Denmark. His parents are Nigerian. But he was born and raised in Denmark. His name is not Dane either. 
His first name is Patrick. Uh, so they just made a mess of that. Real Madrid are interested in signing Malik Thio from AC Milan for 17.3 million. If he's available at that price, there'll be a bunch of clubs knocking down the door to get him. He's very talented. The UK government could provide funding to complete the construction of Caseman Park in Belfast, one of the host venues for Euro 2028. The English government should provide it, considering they've stolen most of the tournament for themselves. Streaming service DAZN is set to target Premier League matches currently owned by Amazon Prime when the next auction for live broadcasting takes place in the coming months. I'd actually prefer if Amazon got more games, personally, but maybe Amazon don't want to be in the in the business of uh, Premier League games for much longer. Right, folks, that's it. This has gone very long, I'd imagine. Uh, I think the first half might have been about an hour and 40. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit sorry, but I'm not overly sorry because this will get you through the weekend. Hopefully you've listened to this in stages. <laughs> but yeah, have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.